first, a little disclaimer. We are prefacing a lot of the appeal of this podcast on the fact that we're prosecutors. However, we need you to understand we are not doing this podcast in our professional capacity as prosecutors. We're doing this as people, after hours, on our own time, with our own equipment. Now, we know a lot about the law by virtue of what we do, uh, but we're also just interested in true crime. So our opinions and commentary in this podcast are not the opinions of our office or our employer. They are not our professional opinions, and nothing in this podcast should be construed as legal advice or anything other than three friends blowing off some steam together. So, with that in mind, don't try this at home. You know what it is. This is Joe. And Cheryl. And I'm Ray. And this is No True Bill. On this episode of No True Bill, we've got part three of the yoga shop murders, and perhaps more importantly, an apology from me, because I screwed up, and I recorded this episode on the wrong input. So it sounds terrible. So I apologize, Ray. I apologize, listeners. I'll do better. I'm a lawyer, not a sound engineer. Dang. But I'm a dummy. Same. All right. So then. Um, Where do we leave off? I don't so even know. We, we left off with all the stuff with the... So there was the club kidnapping and rape. Cavity Club over, I think it was on 6th Street, somewhere in that neighborhood. And there were these Mexican nationals that they liked for it. And there was all this shit about extradition and flying over there and talking to them. And apparently a couple of them confessed. But then they were like, oh, they tortured us. And that's pretty much where it was. We was talking about the serial killer, Kenneth McDuff. Oh, yeah, that the went our, through real quick. <laughs> took that lady from the car wash, right? Yeah. I remember that. Murder took that lady from the car wash. Murked her with the broomstick in Austin right about the time. Mm-hmm. And like, this what happened. the odds? Right. Mm-hmm. And it was not him. Um, or at least not that they've ever been able to demonstrate. Sure. Um, so it yeah, didn't really fit with his pattern either, did it? His his no. mo. I mean, he he liked to strangle females, but there was nothing about like I don't think he had shootings and things. And I forget. I have to pull no far. No, mm. nothing like that. Mm. Um, no. Lord Jesus, there's a fog. <laughs> what? What was that from? Huh? What was that from? Jesus, there's a fire. That interview with the lady that went viral where she's talking about, was she the Ain't Nobody Got Time for That Lady? That's what I can't she, remember. Yeah. Was she a different lady? I, she might have been the same. There have been so many viral interviews of people who have such wonderful voices and give such wonderful sound clips. I Climbing in your windows, snatching your people up. Oh, trying to that, rape one, that one. So you need to hide your kids, hide your, your wife, wife, and that hide was, your husbands because they're raping everybody out here. That's oh, That was amazing. <laughs> The song is what I loved. I think I had the song as my ringtone for a while. <laughs> don't get, don't look at me that way. I was a man of humor. Yes. Back before I was so square. All right. So yeah, basically, last episode ended with they had all these seemingly solid leads, good suspects, and they all just yeah evaporated. They weren't a damn thing. And then our boy got taken off the case. 
Yes. McNulty. And then Mike Jones. Mike Jones. Mike Jones got, got taken off. Who? Uh, John, Mike Jones. Oh, okay. And he got, he got taken off. And um, so then it, it's a little bit of a tangent, but it kind of comes back around um, the, the story, the book anyway. I thought it was kind of an interesting little um, side thought was it delves into one of the issues that they had in this case, which is the dynamic of false confessions. Mm. Um, and the book anyway broke it down into three variants of false confessions. I think the primary that the primary variant that the investigators encountered in this one was what's was what's known as a voluntary false confession, mm-hmm. where people just lie and say they're involved to get notoriety, mm-hmm. right? Like, um, oh, in case you're wanting John Ramsey, I did it. Did you right exactly? Bet. Um, and often they'll say it with great conviction. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, when they're like, all right, well, that's cool that you told us these things, but how you, let's do a polygraph right quick. They're like, oh, uh, all right, I didn't actually do it. Yeah. Um, they just want to be involved. Um, with the you heads, ma- though. Yeah. Word. Could you imagine your life that shitty that you're like, you know what's going to be the best decision for me as a to person? To confess for murder. I'm going to yeah. confess to a murder I didn't commit. And they, just, had a, they had a bunch of those. And there's uh, like people calling in being like, oh, yeah, I know what happened. And I did this and that to the bodies. And they're like, bro, no, you didn't. You know what I mean? Like, that's so it wasn't stupid. even a thing done to the bodies. Right. People try, though. Um, and then they have it. Uh, she has it as uh, the second type is what's known as coercive compliant, mm-hmm. where apparently generally it's a long, uh, arduous interrogation. And they and, just want it to stop. Yes. Like that minute to walk. Remember that? Oh, how to make a murderer? Yeah, remember that? That kid? Um, That was probably that. Yeah, they think that basically if they just tell the police what they want to hear, then Mm -hmm. all right, I'll get out of here, probably get a lawyer, and then I'll be able to prove I ain't doing it. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't generally work out that way. Um, And then you have the maybe the the rarest form, which is coerced internalized, where basically through probably in most instances a lack of it, uh, intellect mm-hmm. and so forth, the suspect starts to actually believe they did it. They can, they're going to pass that polygraph. I yeah. did it! Um, they might not even have any memory of doing it, but they start to believe based upon the the, uh, the leading, the guiding yeah. of, the, of the investigator that, okay, well, maybe I actually did. And, Gaslit um, to shit. Pretty much. <laughs> Gaslighted into a confession. They're like, you know what, matter of fact, I maybe I did do this. Kill that baby. You know what I mean? They're like, so yeah, that's. But we'll see that perhaps the uh, coerced internalized comes to happen in this case. Oh. Um, but so you can't tell this story perhaps. without discussing, and everybody does. It's in the book, it's in all the podcasts and everything you've ever seen. Everybody talks about this dude. He was Senior Sergeant Hector Polanco. Polanco. He was, at least for a period of time, he was uh, one of Mike Jones' superiors okay. in homicide. Okay. Um, so he'd have been like, like, oh, what crew was Mike Jones from in the hip hop game? Oh, I don't remember. Was he from? I mean, we talking like who's? It's, are we talking like Ti to Mike Jones? Like, what are we? <laughs> I don't. He was like, uh, what was the? Um, was the fat dude's name on uh, on the wire? You know, you had like McNulty, and then you had the dude who uh, was she, uh, she homicide. Oh my! You know what I'm saying? Yes. But it uh, wasn't Rawls. It no, was those guys. No, um, no. But regardless, he was he was up the chain slightly. He wasn't you know 
a gold badge, I don't think, but he was a oh, okay. senior sergeant to uh, Mike Jones's sergeant. What, what Landsman. Landsman, Jay Landsman. Yeah, Jay Landsman. There it is. And at least back around the time that this, this I can't believe it's uh, yogurt or whatever the hell it's called, ICBY, mm-hmm. the yogurt shop is going down. Polanco was a homicide god. Mm-hmm. He had a 100% clearance rate. Oh. Honey. What? I mean, this was when Austin was like a small town, right? That's true. That means he solved two murders. Yeah. Well, I mean, I forget what I said earlier. He's two for two. To episode right. one, but I want to say that. <laughs> two for two over his entire career. Yeah. Ep- episode one, we was talking about demographics. Let me go back here. Back around that time, Austin was in the neighborhood of a half a million people. Okay, that's still, that's right, not But they time. also had like no crime rate. Yeah, it was compared to Dallas, and it was it was a safe place compared to, I think we went to like New Orleans, and we, yeah. we did a comparative thing. Go back to episode one, I don't remember. Um, <laughs> it was like two months ago. Yeah, that was a hot minute ago. A um, lot of justice since then. Mm, a lot of injustice. Yeah. Um, <laughs> depending on who you ask. Mm-hmm. So let me get back to where I got here, where I was. Yes, okay. So um, 100% clearance rate, and... This dude was known in the streets as either El Diablo or the Boogeyman. And so bad. Defense attorneys. So bad. Do criminals be giving the cop a nickname? Yeah. Like El Diablo? Yeah, calling him the devil. I don't care what rank he is. He's a god. Oh, he was a bad man. (laughs) He was a bad man. Um, and, And apparently in the courthouse setting, the lawyers and other officers, they called him. The, he got Cobra. They, they don't even agree on the same name. The criminals calling him the devil. The lawyers are calling him the Cobra. Yep. Both badass nicknames. <clears throat> and apparently his. But Boogie he didn't Man. want to get involved with yogurt shop. Well, so didn't he, want his record to be huh, yeah. tainted. Oh, can't have two in one. No, quite the opposite. He did want to get involved in yogurt shop, and we'll get into that in a second. Mm. So. His forte was not so much like he wasn't, you know, one of these guys were like, oh, okay, put him on the crime scene. It's done. His forte was interrogation. Oh. That's what Polanco was about. And oh, he sounds badass. In um, El Diablo. One of the cases that everybody seems to talk about that shows, that sort of rightly or wrongly has been portrayed as demonstrative of Polanco's sort of I gotta close every case. I gotta, you know, keep that clearance rate. Mm-hmm. They hearken back to a case just a few years before Yogurt Shop, um, but actually, factually, is eerily similar. There was in 1988, there was a 20 year old woman in Austin by the name of Nancy DePriest. She was alone in a Pizza Hut, opening the shop when she was attacked, partially tied up with her own clothes, specifically her bra. She was raped. She was shot in the head with a pistol and killed. And the money in the store was taken. No fire, though. No fire. But everything short of arson, almost exactly the same. Wow. Um, And police had no suspects. None. So within the next couple weeks, the, I guess, local Pizza Huts, everybody in the stores, all, all the Pizza Huts, they're, they're, Vigilance level is up, right? They are mm-hmm. they are on high alert. Stay strapped, get clapped. Right. So, within the next couple weeks, two dudes 
Richard Danziger and Christopher Ochoa are seen parked in a car uh, drinking in the same pizza hut where old girl just got killed. Mm. So like going back to the crime scene, seeing, you know, taking it all in round two, we're going to look at our trophy here, right? Or and just hungry for pizza and beer. Could that, I mean. Perhaps. Like, okay. But back then, everybody's. Vigilant. They're, they're, they're paranoid. High alert. Yeah. High alert. Yeah. The hut. Yeah. Calm. Right. And so police get called. They're like, these dudes, this, this chick just got got, or got got the other day in this store. And these dudes are out here just chilling, drinking beer. Like, we're looking random looky Yeah. Like, I'm not, a, we're not okay with this. <clears throat> so police get called. They go out. Um, they're, they're brought in for questioning. When they were asked what they were doing, they said that they were toasting to the dead chick, to Nancy. Weird explanation, but that's what they were saying. Basically, we're we're here drinking in our car in homage to did, Nancy. Did the they priest. did they know Nancy Dupree? Yeah, I was gonna say. Other they, than raping and killing her, did they know her? They were well. They were they were liked beyond just being in the car at the Pizza Hut. They were liked as suspects because they both worked at a nearby Pizza Hut. And it was thought, therefore, that they would have known no, the general what, layout of the store, yeah. operating procedures. When you're going to open, like, right. only person there. Mm-hmm. Um, Maybe even synced it on the schedule. And if I'm not mistaken. Talking a hut on hut ground. Right. Yeah. It's dirty. And I, as I recall, I believe there was no forced entry at this pizza hut. So that gave them even further you know, inclination that, okay, these dudes must have had like a master key or something. Right. They, they knew the protocols. Or they show up with their, with their polo on. Right. That says Pizza Hut. Bring it correct here. Well, good. First delivery, mm-hmm. right? Um, mm. And so then Ochoa gets uh, interrogated by the Cobra, by El Diablo. El Diablo. Yeah, the boogeyman rolls up and says, yo, what's good with it? And um, <laughs> conveniently, I mean, now maybe this was commonplace back in the late 90s, I don't know. But conveniently, it seems a recurring theme with uh, Hector Polanco's interrogations is ain't no recordings Mm-mm. and so he you goes into a room voice. talks to it's pretty good to, <laughs> um, he goes in he talks Can't see to him in a mirror neither Ochoa comes back out no recording no mm-hmm. nothing and lo and behold he's he's confessed he killed Nancy the priest mm-hmm. um, Ochoa said that Polanco <laughs> everybody out there I'm like what well, what did he say, dude? He said, he said he did it. Yeah, right. Every time. He's like, he said, what he happened? And I mean, he would get, you know, get people to sign statements and so forth. But yeah, basically, he'd just go into a box, into the box with him, come back out. He, he, he said he did it. We're good. Nothing to see here. 100% clearance rate. But so <clears throat> Ochoa would later say that Polanco showed him autopsy photos, uh, took, told him, you know, if you, if you, you're the brown guy. Mm. And the other dude's a white guy, and you know who's taking the fall for this. Oh wow! So you, better, you better come correct. Um, it's Texas; they'll put you down. Well, that's he said. He told he threatened mm-hmm. him with the death penalty. Actually, grabbed him by the arm and put his finger in his arm and said, "The needle's going right there." She. That's where the needle's going, <laughs> Joseph. Uh, and he said things up to the to the effect of, "They'll love you in prison." Um, he said oh. it, was, it just lasted for hours and hours and hours. Um, he claimed, Ochoa did, that he said he wanted a lawyer and was told, you don't get one. Um, and ultimately, Ochoa signed a statement that was written, you know, Polanco wrote out the statement, right. sign here, and he did. Um, and he confessed, Case 
closed. He confessed to his part in the murder, and his recitation also implicated Danziger. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, there was no physical evidence to corroborate that these two dudes had raped and murdered this girl. Um, Basically... that because they weren't able to get any evidence from the body, or was there just no evidence that those two were involved? I'm, I'm not entirely certain about that. No case. evidence yeah, at all, just, or just no evidence of those two? I, I mean, I would well, that's a good question. I don't know if, if the assailant, you know, the suspect used a condom or whatever, but or maybe it was a foreign object. Mm-hmm. But either way, they weren't able to tie the crime to them, you know, uh, through DNA or any other kind of biological material. Um, and so, in order to avoid the needle, <clears throat> Ochoa took a, a plea to life without parole, and Damn. the stipulation was he had to testify against Danziger. And Danziger always maintained his innocence. He he was in, interviewed by another investigator, always stuck to his guns, I ain't do this. And then at trial, despite having no evidence other than Ochoa's testimony, testimony right. Danziger was convicted. Um, Ochoa said it was his idea. Um, actually, I'm sorry. I, I've got he in there. I the bad writing. I don't recall whether, but regardless, he said that they worked in tandem. They came up with a plot for the robbery. They tied up and raped Nancy. And then they shot her because she recognized one of them, I guess from the, you know, the, the pizza hut fraternity. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a clean confession, conviction, Bad guys behind bars, right? Then six years later, and, and Texas breathes a sigh of relief. Yeah. These guys are, are doing, I think, I want to say that Danziger maybe was sentenced to death row. And Ochoa, obviously, <laughs> he just got life uh, without. But six years later, a dude, um, I can never remember how you say his first name, Akeem, we'll call him, we'll say Akeem. Akeem Marino is in prex, a prison in Texas serving three life sentences. And he finds Jesus. And he writes a letter to the paper in Austin saying, I did it. I killed Nancy DePriest. Oh. And he said, I can give you the location of the Pizza Hut money bag that the funds, you know, from the till were taken or Mm -hmm. were housed in. Mm -hmm. Uh, He said, I can tell you where the handcuffs were that I used to cuff DePriest during Mm -hmm. the rape. And I can tell you where the gun she got shot with is. And Those are big pieces of evidence. And um, apparently a year went by, and the Travis County DA's office didn't do anything. And so then he sent another letter. And at that time, he, well, he sent it to the governor. And at that time, it was all W. Mm-hmm. And W, well, he sent it to W, the Travis County DA, and Austin PD. And... Um, Oh, okay, I'm sorry. So I guess I answered your question. There was DNA recovered in some capacity, I don't know, saliva or what, but they ran DNA tests on Ochoa and Danziger, and they were both excluded. Um, and... Well, she could have had a boyfriend or something, I reckon. They... Consensual. They found, uh, as I recall, I think they found, like he said, it was, I don't know, at my mama house in this room, in this mm-hmm. cabinet or whatever... And they found, I think, the gun in the handcuffs, as I recall. Oh, my. And so after serving 12 years in prison, Danziger and Ochoa were released. 
unfortunately for Danziger, before he got released, he got jumped. Oh. And a dude stomped him in the dome oh. with steel toes, and he had to have a part of his brain excised and oh. was never fully with it thereafter. You're off the case, Bobrovsky. El Diablo, get out of here. Well, and Polanco would later be fired for suspicion of perjury, oh. misuse of authority, and witness tampering. But then in a plot twist, he would sue the department, alleging the uh, fire uh, firing was discriminatory, it was racially motivated, and he got his job back. And he ultimately wound up retiring, I think as a lieutenant, full Benny's you know, mm-hmm. career rode off into the sunset, everything was good to go. How could he have ever done anything substantive for law enforcement thereafter after that mm-hmm. he's got to be like giglio right i mean if you're saying there giglio came out i don't remember that's a good point but yeah like he uh and i mean I'm, i would imagine this had to have postdated i mean giglio is part of brady brady right and this i think had to have postdated brady mm-hmm. i don't know but um so but back when, when when did all this pop off when did the letters to w and all that uh that would have been Mm, shit. I don't know. Ish. Where? When was it in relation to the to the yogurt shop murders? Are well, you getting there? The the murder happened before yogurt shop. It happened in ninety uh, eight. Okay. Yogurt shop was ninety one, um, and so in ninety one, when this is going down, these dudes are in prison, mm-hmm. so they're not suspects. Um, so, you know, facially, it's like, oh, wow, this would be great, except the guys who supposedly did it are in prison. Um, and I think and the guy the who guy ultimately actually claimed was in prison. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, and you'd think if he's going to fess up to one, if he found Jesus over here, he would find Jesus everywhere. You, right. You would think, why confess to one murder and not another mm-hmm. when you're already in on three? Um, so fast forward to 95. Mike Jones has been reassigned i don't even recall at this point he might have retired um but there has been a lot the book talks a lot about there was a ton of upheaval at the within the upper echelons of the austin police department um a lot of hirings firings just whatever they couldn't seem to keep a chief of police and by 95 they've got a different um chief and uh basically says Paul Johnson, homicide detective, you know what, you as a secondary obligation, secondary duty to your homicide duties, after hours, you know, downtime, whatever, you can look back into the overshot. Go ahead. And Johnson's on the case. Indeed. Johnson is on the case. Um, he's he's kind of described back then as a lone wolf, kind of like sort of a similar personality, maybe a little bit abrasive, but kind of has that like archival, like wants to have everything in order and is very meticulous, kind of like Jones. Mm. Um, so him looking at this case and the mess that was made of it by uh, Ermagerd and the uh, Grimes yeah. wouldn't print, uh, he's got to be going crazy about that. Yeah, I don't think he's too pleased. Um, and so he basically is trying to just go back to square one. He's looking at everything that was there. He's looking at any of the outstanding um, suspects, guys who hadn't been cleared. I think they're even, he's even trying to go through and look at guys or, you know, suspects who had been cleared to see whether they were rightfully, rightfully cleared. cleared. Yeah. Um, okay. And he was permitted to have a partner 
So you got Johnson and Thompson now uh, looking at the yogurt shop. The dynamic duo. Team son. Oh, that's right. <laughs> and so he is trying to, you know, he's trying to cull through this list and shorten it. And even Johnson trying to reduce the, the information that needs to be uh, sifted through. Mm-hmm. In his computer database, he's got 5,000 entries. And in the, there are physical file cabinets that are just full of documents that I guess for whatever reason were never digitized. Um, and so in sifting through Jones's list of major suspects, um, around about 96, 97, Johnson finds Maurice Pierce. And Jones, I won't say cleared him, but kind of came to an investigative roadblock. Mm-hmm. It was like, I can't do anything more with it. Um, and so let's see. So back in, and one of the reasons that Jones said, well, we can't do anything further with him is back in, uh, I guess, 91, 92, the early outset of the investigation. Um, Maurice Pierce submitted to a polygraph, which he passed. Um, and interestingly enough, Johnson is not satisfied with that. He says he goes to the APD polygraph examiner working in 97, who, according to the book, everybody at the department thought was garbage. And he said, um, hey, man, here's the results. Here's the, the testing results for Pierce. What do you think? And he says, well, no, I mean, that's accurate. Like, if you were using the old sort of scoring rubric, dude would have passed. Mm-hmm. But we've sort of, that's kind of an outdated method. And if I were taking those responses, those, you know, physiological responses or whatever, and, and applying it to the current rubric, um, the best it would have been would have been inconclusive. Mm-hmm. So basically, as I indicated, most. According to the book, most APD thought this dude was decent at best, and Johnson was invigorated. He was like, hold up, inconclusive? Okay, that gives me something to work with. I can work with inconclusive. And so by late 97, Johnson likes Pierce and his homies uh, for the crime, more or less. I mean, I'm not saying he's he's exclusively considering them as suspects, but he mm-hmm. likes them. Mm-hmm. Um, Better than anything else floating at the so, time. So far. Yeah. Despite the fact that they don't match the uh, sketches that were rendered mm. and they don't really match the FBI's profile. Mm. Um, and so the four guys that kind of take the take center stage as suspects are Maurice Pierce, his boy, Forrest Wellborn, Robert Bruce Springsteen, and... Dunder Mifflin fame, Michael Scott. Hey, they're all they're all boys, and um, that's a lot of individuals, a lot of people to keep their mouth shut. Right. That's Cheryl's rule number two, three, four, somewhere in there. I forget. Everything after rule number one gets fuzzy. I was gonna say it's not two. I probably it's probably three. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so the the question is, well, how do these fools um, come within the APD's crosshairs, right? Mm-hmm. And so we have to go back to Starcourt. We have to go back to the North Cross Mall, which is 
right just down the way from the yogurt shop. Where the two little girls were at. Where the two mm-hmm. girls were hanging out. Look at that. The older, right. older daughter, Jennifer, picked him up, brought him back to the shop, and then uh-huh. they were going to have to sleep over. Uh-huh. Um, so on December, the, the, the crime happened the evening, you know, late late night, December 6th, 1991. Mm-hmm. They're working at whatever. On December 14th, just about a week later, at about 6 p.m., this idiot, 16-year-old Mar- Maurice Pierce, went to Starcourt and was seen with a loaded 22 in his waistband. And somebody saw this, alerted Paul Blart, and the who alerted APD, they come out, they hook him up, and he's with his buddy, Forrest Wellborn. Wellborn, I think, was 15 at the time. That's math, though. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're both put in, like, a juvenile detention center. Okay. Um, and when asked why he was carrying a... So he had, I think it was three rounds, three or four rounds in this twenty-two revolver. Mm-hmm. And then had, uh, I think it was 16 rounds just in, a, in his pocket. Mm. And when he was asked, like, bro, why are you going to the, you know, Sam Goody with... Uh, with this gap with, right Yeah, or strapped up. Why are you coming in hot? He was like, I'm just, just carrying it to carry it. Texas. Pretty much. Because Texas. So, yeah, he was charged with unlawful possession of a weapon. And he and Wellborn were taken into APD for questioning. And guess who heard about... Um, Pierce getting hooked up for having a gun just a week after the murders at the yogurt shop. Mike Jones. El Diablo. Oh, no. <clears throat> Not Bobrovsky. And he, um, so he says, I, I want the first crack. They're like, okay, man, you uh-huh. you have at it, Cobra. Do what you do, player, strike out. And, uh, <laughs> strike so out. It was, as you would suspect, an extremely long, presumably very intense interrogation. We wouldn't know because it wasn't recorded. Mm-hmm. But when Polanco emerges after hours and hours and hours, he has in his hands a signed confession. And to the yogurt shop murders. Yes. Pierce says uh, the 22 was his. It was probably the gun used in the killing, probably. although he didn't do it. Probably his buddy Forrest Wellborn, who he got hemmed up in the mall with, mm-hmm. did it. Um, and he said things to the effect. Aren't there of, two gas <laughs> used? Wasn't a twenty-two and a three eighty? Or did I make that up? No, there were two. Okay. Were two. Um, and he he says that he says all four's gone. He did it. Yeah, more or less. He yeah. And he he says that in the early afternoon on on that day they went to Lake Travis. We're shooting some guns at trees. Uh, they went to the North Cross Mall to kill time. He remembered going outside around about sunset. They watched the, was, I guess this was something they routinely routinely did, kind of a la uh, the pool at the sand, in the sandlot. They would walk out into the parking lot, watch the Hooters girls come in for their shifts. Um, he remembered that clearly. Um, and he said that the night of the murder between 10, 10.30, and I think as you know, this happened, I think the last sale was, what, 10.07 or something to that effect. So that tracks. It was, it was in the same time frame. He says he remembers, and I remembered what it was called this morning. I had an epiphany. Remember All that? from it? The Barons. The Barons. So he says at that time frame, they're hanging out at the Fungus, which is 
this area near the mall, kind of in this vicinity of the mall and the ICBY that is, I only have, can imagine, is like a storm water runoff kind of pond sort mm-hmm. of deal that is like a dry pond kind of thing. Sure. Um, and apparently, named the fungus. Actually yeah. named the fungus. And apparently a lot of like alternative youth would go there and they would hang out and just kind of be little... little just super goth and hang out? Well, they would, I mean, it was a place where like kids would go and hang out and they would, they would drink and they would smoke weed and maybe fight or whatever. It was just kind of like this hangout for teens where more or less anything went, right? Hacky sacks everywhere. Right? And uh, he said that he, well, maybe a little bit more harder edged uh, alternative. He said that he and Forrest went there, were hanging out with some guy named Mace, who was supposedly a skinhead gang leader. Oh. And uh, at... While they're doing this, Wellborn comes up and says, hey, man, mind if I borrow your gun? And he was like, yeah, sure. Sure, buddy. And he left. And then he came back. And I guess it was empty because he said it came back and the gun had been fired six times. So I guess it was loaded and then not. Mm -hmm. Um, He had a scratch on his neck and he smelled of hairspray. And so now we've got this version where this kid leaves not too far from the ICBY, he has defensive wounds on him, and he comes back smelling of an accelerant. This is starting to fit the police's narrative, right? Mm-hmm. Like this is something that would really fit nicely with the evidence on scene. Oh, sure. <clears throat> um, and he also claimed, Pierce did, that when Wellborn returned, or maybe like in the next day or two or whatever, he said that he had done something bad and he wanted to do it again. Oh. Um, and, but some of the issues inherent in that recitation of facts was, ain't nobody ever heard of Mace. Nobody knew who this Mace was. Like, they used a figment of somebody's imagination, it would seem. Mm-hmm. Um, it would probably take a whole lot of hairspray to start a fire. And even if, for the sake of argument, these girls had a whole bottle in their purse, as you'll recall, their personal effects were locked in the office like it was supposed to be per the Bryce Foods protocol. Mm-hmm. And the door was locked from the inside keys were found i think at the register or whatever ain't nobody ever went in that office to get right um and i don't know this to be true one way or the other but it just struck me as like you know when you the combustibility of things and the the temperatures that they burn at i don't even know if hairspray could get hot enough to melt aluminum you know yeah well i mean i mean you have to catch something on fire yeah um but so you ever make uh, like a torch out of axe body spray it's probably the same sort of I would think sort of deal. similar. Little mini flamethrower mm-hmm. action. So Polanco gets this confession and promptly tells Mike Jones. Closed your case, Mikey. Yeah, got it for you. Don't worry about it. Solve that yoga. Yeah. You owe me a beer, pal. Yeah. So Let's um, get some Tito's. They I, I'm still I, I must have overlooked something, but somehow they um, make contact with the others, the other of the four, Springsteen and Scott, mm-hmm. who voluntarily went to the APD for questioning, and they had no idea that while they were being approached by Jones to come down and answer some questions, that Polanco was wiring Pierce up with recording. Okay. Equipment. Can't um, can't record a, an interrogation, but can set him up to, to snitch. Up. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um. Oh, that, that, that probably is where it came from. So 
amid the discussion with Pierce, there was um, there's this incident about basically they well okay so one of the things that happened with Pierce was after he gives the statement um, he takes officers back to his house and is like look at all these guns we have mm. and apparently he and his dad were cut from the same cloth they cared about two things very Texas guns and cars mm. um, and so he he said that there was another 22 that I don't know like, could have been used I, I guess it was just of investigative interest he said it should be here at the fungus uh, it should be it's like a communal gun which I thought was strange <laughs> but that it should either be in a drain pipe or buried in this particular area. They go out there, no. nothing. It ain't there. Um, and so there's this bit about, during this conversation, he says, okay, well, what did you guys do the night of the 6th? He says, you know, Hooters, uh, we're all hanging out, whatever. What did yeah. you do? He says Hooters. He says. What did you do uh, the more, or what did you do on the 7th? And he tells them about how basically they, uh, in, a, in a quintessential crime of opportunity, were mulling about and they saw that there was an unattended Nissan Pathfinder with keys in the ignition in a uh, dealership lot in the area. And they decided they were just going to steal it. Okay. And they go, they drive up towards San Antonio because I can't, it doesn't really matter. But one of these dummies had a girlfriend up there and apparently they were, he was going to break up with them, break up with her in person. Squad rolls up. <clears throat> they go when they're in San Antonio, early morning hours of the 7th, I believe. Um, or no, I'm sorry. I guess it was, it would have been the 8th. They... It was the early morning hours of the 8th. They, they're driving around. They ultimately get low on gas. So they go to a gas station. One of them goes in and gets a newspaper. The other one, one of the others is pumping the gas. And then they decide, well, we don't have any cash. We're just going to steal this gas. And they drive off. And apparently it's very early. You have four young kids, teenagers. They're just acting squirrely. And so the, the cashier, is, the clerk, is watching. He's hawking them. Mm -hmm. And when they drive off, full tank of gas, seven dollars. Right. Yeah. He, <laughs> he, re day. <laughs> he reports this, uh, calls it in, and errantly, the officer who took the report wrote the date of this offense as the early morning hours of December seven, not December eight. Mm. So now it's looking like these four killed these girls. And then stole some gas. Stole a car, oh. hopped in it, drove to San Antonio, but hours after they killed these girls because they were killed, you know, around about 10, 30, 11 o'clock on the 6th. Now these dudes are stealing cars and hopping town, going the to San Antonio. The, the morning of the 7th, air quotes. Um, but it was actually the 8th. Uh, and apparently that would not Details be, matter. That would not be noticed by police until after arrested them whoops um shocker it was well, not going to change anything when they do come to the realization um oh yeah they don't, they don't care um <clears throat> so 
the question is, now that these guys have sort of assumed primacy as main suspects, who are these guys, right? Um, we talked about who the girls were in episode one. Who are these four, I guess the way it was being characterized in the media and so forth, and just common parlance around town. Who are these four bad boys who killed these four good girls? Uh, right? Numbers. So you got 16-year-old Maurice Pierce. He was from Austin. By the time he was about 12, he was having issues with drugs, started to take a nosedive academically. Uh, he was really the only one of the lot who had any real run-ins with the law. By 1990, he was arrested for joyriding twice. One time, he found a car with keys in it and said, why not? One time, he drove his dad's car and drove to Houston. Uh, he was suspended from school for fighting and uh, having a knife. He got arrested for stealing fire extinguishers. Um, you can never be too safe. That's right. He was later put in alternative school for kids with behavior and learning disorders. Um, and at one point he would be asked, well, when was the last time you went to school? And he was like, I don't know, a week, two weeks, a month, maybe a month and a half, two months. He didn't know. <laughs> when they put him in alternative school, he said, screw this, I'm out. And in 1991, earlier in the year, he'd been charged with trespassing for hopping a fence at an apartment complex with a knife. Mm. He was charged with possession of stolen property when he was found with a stereo, the police thought was stolen. And again, for trespassing from uh, when he went to the school, uh, he got booted at and threatened to beat a kid up. And I think arising from that same uh, incident, he was charged with assault. And I didn't look under Texas law whether assault is like here, where it's just putting someone in apprehension, or whether he actually like a hands on. Yeah. <clears throat> um, and he said, what we know is that the gun, the 22 that he had, was apparently a gun that a 13-year-old had lifted off of the 13-year-old's dad, and then Pierce lifted it off the 13-year-old. Mm. So a stolen, stolen gun. Mm -hmm. double, double stolen. Double stolen, indeed. <clears throat> then you have his best friend, Forrest Wellborn, who's 15. He's quiet, sort of a loner, had to repeat ninth grade because all he did was skip school with Pierce. Um, and Springsteen would later say that Wellborn would do anything Pierce told him to. Um, Pierce would say, well, yeah, Wellborn just sort of rolled with me all the time because I had a car. Um, Pierce, then why would it make sense, the statement that he gave that Wellborn right. asked him to borrow the gun and left on his own? Yeah. Well, you'll see that none of this the way it was None characterized in the in the the, pod, the one of the podcasts I, I listened to or whatever YouTube videos was, you know, square peg round hole. It's just they despite the overwhelming evidence that would suggest these guys are probably not your masterminds, um, who, you know, committed a quadruple homicide and arson, it didn't matter. Um and yeah, basically, Wellborn was sort of a loser who just couldn't get it together. He was kind of a follower. He drank too much, didn't have any luck with the females. He once got arrested for just sitting in a car while his homie went in and stole beer out of a convenience store. I guess maybe he was the guy left holding the bag, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, like, literally sat in the car and his dumbass got arrested over it. You know, like, just can't get it together. Everybody's favorite scapegoat. Right. Um, you have Michael Scott... Um, before he moved to Scranton, he was born in Micronesia, where his family lived after his grandpappy served in Guam in World War II. Mm. 
and he moved around a lot as a young kid. He actually lived in Italy for a while as a child, uh, and then ultimately his family settled in Austin for the majority of his school age years. Um, and he had academic issues primarily because he kind of had, I think this was, he would later be diagnosed, if not at this time with ADD, but he also apparently had severe dyslexia. Mm. Um, and as a freshman at this McCallum High School, he was involved in all kinds of stuff, extracurriculars. He was on the freshman football team. He was into drama. He played the uh, viola. He was in mad involved in Boy Scouts. Um, he was apparently in something I've never heard of it before, but it was called Explorer Scouts, where they studied the dress and culture of 1840s Native Americans and uh, their he learned their traditional techniques to tan leather and make like traditional Indian clothing. Um, it's like a really cool kid, right? Um, but because Culture. of his learning to say or learning disability, he kind of hated academics, formal academics. And by sophomore year, he started to go downhill. Somehow, it's not entirely clear, but somehow he linked up with with, Spring, with Springsteen, mm. and that was all she wrote. Um, and he said that by the time he was squad with Springsteen, all they did was sit around and smoke weed more or less all day. Smoke oh, weed every day. Yeah. And in, in 1999, when he was um, interviewed, he would say that he had a piss poor memory. Yeah. And bear with me. Um, I don't remember raping them girls. Yeah. He said in, in 1999, he but would say I do. that he... Um, when asked generally what happened on December 6th, he said, got up, got high, screwed around, made some phone calls, smoked a joint by the condo pool, rode the city bus to McCallum to see what was going on. And then in a later statement, he would say, uh, went up to school Friday morning, 8 a.m., talked to Rob Springsteen in front of the school. I don't know how he got there. I told him I'd be at the bowling alley at lunch, left school at lunch with Rob and Maurice and Forrest around 2.30, Went to Capitol Bowl, I guess the bowling alley, had lunch, then left 30 minutes later. Amber, a girl that one of them was interested in, uh, was at the bowling alley, and from the bowling alley went to North Cross a little after three. So basically, oh, and I'm sorry, there's there's the last one. Robert Springsteen, he was 17. <clears throat> he lived in Austin for about three, four months. Uh, he was born in Chicago but raised in the Charleston, West Virginia suburb no. of Crosslands. What? What's that? He, Crosslands. Cross Vegas. How he, about that? Uh, attended Stonewall Jackson Junior High School, which is apparently now Westside Middle. Westside? And uh, in West Virginia, he was characterized by teachers as a misfit, oh. hardly attended, dressed outlandishly, was kind of distracting generally, had a bad attitude, had terrible grades, uh, had... Bad kid, did you see what he was wearing? outlandishly? Like... Yeah, like apparently he just dressed mismatched socks and everything. Yeah, right? I don't know. Um, I find that charming. Yeah. He uh, was assigned also to... Eventually, he got he got sent to alternative school. I guess it was called Cabell Alternative. Uh, that didn't really help. Um, he was fighting at home, fighting in school. Um, uh, and so eventually what he did was he called his father who lived in Austin and, uh, was, it was agreed upon that he would move out there to live with daddy. And daddy had two 
like girlfriends, like conduct. adjacent condos. Mm-hmm. The one he and his girl lived in, um, the other was primarily kept vacant. It would be for guests if they come into town or whatever, and they were like, "Okay, you can live in that one." And just gave him his own <clears throat> condo, more or less. Dude, and, I had a homie who had his own spot in high school. Yeah, like right behind. Like it was like, it was like an in-law suite or something, like behind uh, the garage behind yeah. his parents' house, and like he moved out there in high school. It was pretty dope. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's kind of the same. <clears throat> yeah. <clears throat> They're separate condos, but as I understand it, they're like right next to each other. You know what I mean? They're mm-hmm. not separated by any distance. I've had neighbors before too, and I didn't have any idea what the shit they was doing. That's mm-hmm. all I'm saying. Well, that's yeah. true. No, that it's is true. Poor parenting. Yeah, that's fair. Um, and apparently, this this condo was about seven miles from the ICBY and about three from the high school. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he rolls up, and he's you know I guess seventeen. He shows up. He's in Austin. He enrolls at McCallum. He should have been a junior, but because his grades and attendance were so terrible, he had to enroll as a sophomore. And right off the bat, or right off the bat, had issues. He uh, pulled a knife on a kid during an argument at a McDonald's. Oh. He was on the football team briefly, but then quit because he got into a beef with the coach. His uh, attendance and attitude were garbage. And the teachers almost immediately were like, put this fool in alternative school. We don't like him. And the principal was like, no, 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 no. He wrote a letter. He said he was very sorry about pulling a knife on this kid at the McDonald's. And let's just give him a shot. But we're going to keep him on a tight leash. And so he's on his best behavior for a while. And then it, well, briefly. And then the wheels come off. Mm-hmm. He uh, <clears throat> sent to alternative school, stops going again. Just straight up just stops going. Um, and that was the thing about, the, I believe that, that was him who said the thing about, I don't know what I went last. Um, and so in November of 91, about three weeks before the yogurt shop murders go down, he got permission from dad to let his homeboy, Michael Scott, just move in and live with him. So these two high school, two high school school dudes have their own spot. Right. And the only rule was if they quit school, they had to get jobs and they were like, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, we'll go to school. They didn't go to school. Lies. They would just skip every day. They'd get up every morning, act, act like, like they're going to school, and just not. Um, sometimes they would go to school, but just to hang out with homies in the parking lot. They wouldn't go to class or anything like that. Um, and coincidentally, the day before the murders on December 6th, his dad, Springsteen the third, would call a tip line that APD had set up that was to report missing kids or missing persons, I guess. And he said, I haven't seen my son or Scott for like three days, something like that. And later the author of the book, Beverly Lowry, she's like, she met up with Springsteen and was like, bro, why would your dad say that? He was like, I mean, I don't know. Like maybe I wasn't there, but I wasn't missing. I was probably high I do somebody. what I want. Yeah, like I was probably high on somebody's couch for a weekend or whatever, but I wasn't like missing, missing. You know what I'm saying? And he had his own apartment. <clears throat> he wasn't treated like a child, so he didn't feel the need to act like a child. Yeah, I guess. Um, and so it's sort of confusing, but these four dummies, it really seems, based on all their varying recitations of what happened, could not recall with specificity exactly what happened on the day before the yogurt shop murders the day of or really ever 
Their primary objective. <laughs> is, well, if uh, they're the same, man. Well, yeah. Their primary objective, daily routine was drink beer, smoke weed, drop acid if you can find it, get into you know little small bents with the law, uh, do anything to kill time, just let life pass them by. They had no ambition. They were just you know living for the moment. Man. All right. Yeah. All right. Very, all right. very days to confuse these guys. Okay. So. Now, go back to Polanco just got Pierce to confess. Yeah, case closed. Pierce agreed to wear a wire for the purpose of getting recorded confessions from the friends that he implicated in the statement, particularly Wellborn, the guy he says asked to borrow the gun. Mm -hmm. Um, And basically what they do is Pierce has wheels. They go, go find your boy. We'll just tail you. And he's driving her all over God's creation, trying to find his boy. And finally he does. <clears throat> and he gets, uh, he sees Wellborn just walking down the street. He's like, hey man, hop in. And um, one thing that was interesting was, um, and you know, mind you, like I said, everybody who had basically, had basically been questioned, I think Pierce, you know, they, uh, he took them to their house, but then Jones and everybody, they talked to the others that he referenced. Um, and so his crew were wise to the fact that they, in some capacity, might be of interest to the police in this murder. Right. So one of the first things that Pierce notices when he picks up Wellborn is that Wellborn traditionally has very long brown hair. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what's happening. <laughs> we're in a respiratory clinic all of a sudden. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so Wellborn has, has traditionally has very long hair when when uh, Pierce spots him on the street and says hop up in my whip he's cut all his hair off he got that crispy face yeah pretty much and when he's asked like bro why'd you cut all your hair off he says that his dad told him to do it more or less that he had to and because he needed to conceal his identity real sus right mm-hmm. uh, I figured that was saying you look, you look like says, a criminal right yeah. My dad says, please don't need to know what I look like no more. They keep picking me up. And so Pierce kind of like, you know, on, on pins and needles, on very nervous. He just jumps right into it, like has no tact whatsoever. So remember when you wore my gun? Remember that? Remember that? Remember that when you, that when you killed that girl? <laughs> he, he straight up goes, um, what happened to your hair? And then the guy says, you know, whatever, it's just my, my identity. And then he goes, what did you actually do that night, that Friday? And Wellborn goes, pardon? And he goes, <laughs> what you talk about, dude? The, that Friday night when the girls were dead. Huh? And you said you wanted to use a gun. When I wanted to use a gun. And this goes on and on and on. And he says, uh, Pierce uh, gets to the point where he directly accuses him. You said you wanted to use the gun and that you had killed the girls. And he was like, bro, I was just playing. Uh, I never killed anybody. And then Pierce lost his temper and said, don't play the game, Forrest. Don't back with me. And then, I mean, apparently I've not seen the video, but I think I heard some of the audio clip one time. Pierce is like pissed. He's like, don't back with me. He's screaming at him. He's like, bro, what What is wrong with you? Um, I'm hollering. And then. That was not weed in that joint. That's PCP. Right. Um, And then at one point during this, uh, Pierce just like kind of starts to cry a little bit and says, you know, I ain't got the guts to kill them girls. 
but that gun was mine. And, you know, I'm about to go down for this. And apparently they just sat around while, while Pierce is mic'd up. They're in this car, and these two are arguing between one another about who's more scared. No, I'm more scared, man. Man, fuck you, I'm more scared. You know what I mean? Just sitting there, like, crying. And just, so, Jones and company are watching this, and they conclude that this interview is a complete dumpster fire. <laughs> that Wellborn legitimately had no idea what Pierce was talking about. And that Pierce probably just said what Polanco wanted to hear so he could get out of that interview room. Mm. Um, and they would also, as I said, they'd speak with the other three about that night. Wellborn said, I don't remember anything. Scott and Pierce, or uh, Scott said that Pierce took them to 6th Street where they partied, dropped them off at their houses at about 1030 or so. And Springsteen said that he and Scott snuck into, well, I think he snuck into the midnight showing of Rocky Horror Picture Show at Starcourt, and Scott was unable, so he just chilled in the lobby waiting for Springsteen to come back until 2 o'clock in the morning. That's a friend. Right. Or someone real lonely without a whip. Right. So now investigators have this quote-unquote confession from Pierce, one among many that has, you know, some interesting, potentially inculpatory elements to it mixed with a lot of stuff that doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, as I indicated, without the ability to substantiate or corroborate anything that Pierce was saying. Could, just to ask a question, because I don't remember this for the life of me. Okay. During the investigation with regard to like bullets and things, mm-hmm. uh, were they able to recover any oh, we're gonna get bullets, to that. bullet fragments in these girls that they compared to this don't, gun? Don't you worry. We're going to get to that. Okay. I was well, going to say. Okay, okay. I, we do have a te- weapon here. Teaser. Well, so, okay. We're we're in uh, we're in Mike Jones land right now, right? Like, they just got all these. They just pull off over. Right. We came forward to go back. Right. right. And so, uh, round about that time, 91, 92, whatever, they did take, they were able to recover spent bullets from the scene at least i don't know about the 380 but at least the 22 and they did do ballistics and the gun that pierce had was excluded as the gun used at icy <laughs> okay so that's cool. even more evidence that this was garbage just yeah a waste of time right so yeah as i said there's nothing to link these two or these four to the crime other than Polanco got Pierce to crack. Okay, so, but Johnson's like, ah, let's not totally scratch him off. Yeah, so uh, basically, and I thought it was interesting too that the, the author of the book, Beverly Lowry, she noted that she was like, if this idiot Pierce hadn't gone to the mall strapped up with a concealed weapon, these four most names never would have come across the police's radar right Mm -hmm. um and so when that's sort of where jones's investigation stalls out he gets reassigned it now gets uh johnson gets the case in in a secondary capacity as indicated initially um and so then the book fast forwards to 1997 at this point pierce is 22 he's married his high school sweetheart he has a daughter he lives inside of dallas he's got various jobs basically doing manual labor wellborn 21 has a daughter with his girlfriend works in an automotive shop the most trouble he's gotten in is one time he got caught driving on a suspended license and apparently soon 
within the 97, 98 time frame, he's going to own his own body shop. All right. Good for him. Yeah. Scott is 23. He's moved around doing a variety of stuff. He uh, did roofing. He worked in an adult, I think it was bookstore, so selling smut. He married a computer tech and was basically assumed the role of father figure to his wife's four-year-old daughter. Okay. Springsteen, he's also 23. He's bounced. He's back in Charleston. He lives with his mama. He's working a various uh, a number of uh, minimum wage gigs, flipping burgers, selling I forget it was like something, some kind of catalog door to door or some shit. Hmm. And he's taking ADD uh, meds to I guess address some of his learning issues or whatever. Okay. Um, so now Johnson has the case, and he gets on the phone. Where the hell is it coming from? I don't know. He gets on the phone and he calls Pierce. And Pierce says, yeah, I'll sit down and talk to you. Sure, no problem. Um, And let me get to my page. He, even after being heavily interrogated and being, assuming he was basically bullied into into a false confession, he's willing to sit down with Johnson? I don't need no lawyer. Come on, babe. Yeah, yeah, no problem. Come to my spot. I didn't learn anything the first time. That that You like corn dogs? I'm making corn dogs. Right. Uh, Didn't learn anything from my last experience. Hmm. So he says, basically, he, he essentially repeats the story about Forrest borrowing the 22, but this time he says it wasn't in the fungus, it was at an arcade. And he summed it up with, I know I made a statement when I was arrested that said that Forrest told me other details about the murders. I don't remember any of that now. I know I was very nervous and I was trying to say things to help me get out of the police interview and they were, inter- they were twisting my story up. And so then Johnson tries to make contact with Wellborn and he does. And Wellborn agrees to an interview and he says, um, he was probably at North Cross Mall because that's where they typically hung out. And he was probably with Pierce because that's who he hung out with most. And after denying any involvement in the crime, he was given a polygraph, which he passed. Um, and in his report, Johnson noted that Forrest was helpful, credible, and cooperative, and that he now had doubts about his participation. But according to Pierce, Wellborn was a trigger man. Right. And now the lead investigator's going, ah, I like this guy. I don't think he did it at all. And then Johnson also calls Springsteen and Scott, and they give him nothing. No, no helpful information. So there's no headway in the investigation, but these four are the front runners, despite the inherent unreliability of the evidence and the inconsistencies. Nothing tying them to it. Right, nothing tying them to it. The inconsistencies and what they're saying, the lack of physical evidence or even really circumstantial evidence. You've got, uh, you know, they're, supposedly they're still looking at, at Kenneth McDuff and these Mexican nationals from the uh, Cavity Club and so forth. Mm-hmm. But by July of 98, um, a, the, the newer APD chief, been on the job about nine months, he says, Johnson, you know what? I want you to investigate yogurt shop full time. You and some of your homicide homies 
can assemble a, wait for it, cold case task force. Yes! And nice. by August of 1998, the cold course, cold case task force had- Cold case task force? Did they have a cold case solicitor though? Uh, I don't know. Um, and they wish they had a solicitor. They, they had determined to either quote, eliminate or pursue Pierce. They're like, okay, it's come to a head. We're gonna say this dude did it or he didn't. Mm-hmm. One of the two. Um, and for reasons, I don't know if they've ever been revealed, but by August 6th of 1998, with the evidence we have. That we just here's, discussed. Here's described, yes. yes. Johnson apparently is all in on the idea that Pierce did this. I don't oh like Johnson. God. Put him with Bobrovsky. <clears throat> because, like I said, this this other detective who was working underneath him, his name was Lana or Lena, I don't know how you pronounce his last name, but he said that one of their jobs, in order, or in addition to McDuff and the, the Mexicans, we're going to look at, we're either going to clear him or we're going to pursue him. And then one day, August 6, 1998, Johnson has prepared a 205 slide PowerPoint that took four hours to present entitled, quote, the investigative plan to pursue Maurice Pierce. How we are going to body this fool for these crimes. Four hours worth of content on how we're going to get it. He ain't going to be a solicitor general of the cold case unit. Not going to happen. Um, it had pictures of Pierce in the middle with like lines extending out of his head to <laughs> bubbles of other people, like to include Wellborn and Springsteen, but oddly not Scott, because when they most recently spoke to Pierce, he said, I don't even remember Scott's name. I don't know. Maybe he was a hang around or whatever, but like I don't even know that dude. He ain't one of the squad. Yeah. Um, and so in later 1998, in an attempt to fix his lack of evidence issue, John- <laughs> it's a small issue to right, have. It's a little bit bitty. But Johnson is like anything it's about fixable. that sentence. How he going to fix it, right? Perhaps right? you don't have any evidence of his involvement because he's not involved. That's right. what well, that's, that's how a quitter thinks, Cheryl. Right, right. I- we're we're getting somebody for this. And so Johnson takes the gun, the ammo, all that sends it for ballistics testing again. And it excludes it. Again. Okay. It's not, so they did it with the Mike Jones era. Yeah. Now it's in the Paul Johnson era. And he's like, you know what? Let's take a second look, get a second opinion. And they were like, still no. Still not the gun, homie. Still not the so guy. when the ballistics efforts are frustrated, he goes to, let's go back to the fire. And as you'll recall, the dude who was primary and sort of processing the scene with Mike Jones was the fire investigator, Melvin Stahl. Okay. Stahl took a lot of the pictures. Stahl issued the report the very next day on December 8th saying epicenter, these shelves that have all melted and, and the ladder. And the Irma God leg gets stolen. Right. Okay. And <laughs> we all decided we weren't even going to swab for accelerant because nah. we didn't smell it. Yeah. Um, and so Johnson, rather than go back to Stahl, goes to his boy, a former Indian. <laughs> We got, just can't. I don't know if the mom is going to pick that up. But someone is dying of lung cancer in the adjacent room and is hacking out all of the carcinogens. Like, I don't know what is happening, but it is really... I kind of want to check on whoever yeah, it is. It, is, it sounds masculine, it but what... Happening. Is it? I, 
it's coming from like <laughs> some of the noise. Some of the noise like sounded like it was coming from upstairs earlier. Just sounds down over there. Yeah, behind us. Well, behind me in front of you guys. But um, so <laughs> so Johnson says, "Let's go back to the fireside. Let's see what we got there." But we're not going to go back to Melvin Stahl, the guy, the boot on the ground. Why don't we do that? Now he had. Subsequently, I mean, by this time he had retired, but still, I'm sure. Oh, that's a fair enough reason. Sure, gets a little bit wanted. But so rather than do that, he goes to another guy who's retired from APD, a dude. (laughs) If you're going to a retired dude, go to the retired dude. He was retired, but so he was an APD officer. This guy's name's Marshall Little John, and I guess maybe Johnson decided to go to Little John because back in the day when Little John worked for APD, at least at some point in time. He and Johnson were partners. Okay. They were Little John Johnson. Yes, Little John Johnson <laughs> had been, they were partners. Yes. What? Little John Johnson. For the last ten years post APD retirement, yeah. Little John had he was a fire investigator for DATF. <laughs> and um so he says <laughs> he says, um, yo Hunter. Is there a way that this crime scene can be modeled? And which, I mean, maybe you know about in your experience, but basically I guess the way they're referring to it back in this era is put in all the data about the size of the room, the, the whatever data you can input, and in some kind of sophisticated computer program, it can tell you basically... It can give you the, the information on the fire in reverse. You put in, it goes from extinguishment to origin. So you can put in the end, what you're seeing at the end there, and it'll extrapolate, I guess, backwards and go, I mean, okay, here's how it starts. But when was this? We talking like floppy disks and like Roblox style yeah, animation? Probably. Like this what is are we? probably Oregon Trail, dog. <sighs> All right. 98? I trust it. I um, trust it. <clears throat> but so he goes, it, can you do that? And he was like, I mean, yeah, but... And this was very strange, and apparently it came up in one of the trials, the defense attorneys grilled him, and he straight up conceded he said it. But Little John was like, I mean, yeah, you can, but it's going to exclude, it might exclude suspects. Uh, and it's like, isn't that the point? Right, that's the entire You want to exclude the suspects that didn't do it. But so then, so like Yikes. he basically, he stalls initially in 98 and is like, nah, bro, I don't know. And then in early 99, apparently Johnson goes back to him. He's like, bro, what about that modeling though? And Littleton's like, dude, you don't want to do it. He was like, given the fact, like he was like, if you had the shelves and the ladder and things of that nature, that might actually be very beneficial to a modeling uh, program. Right. But since Irma Gerd lost it all, it's probably going to bring back faulty results, faulty findings, and then you're going to be stuck. So he's able to, Little, Littleton is able to stave that off. Little, John's, little yeah. John doesn't want to do the collab. Yeah, right. No collabs here. No, no. They, they beef him. And so then by the end of 98, Johnson calls Pierce again and says, Hey, bruh, I know you've come out on, you come down to the station voluntarily. You let me interview you another time voluntarily. How's about this go round? You submit to a little bit of hypnosis. And he's like, sure. And lo and behold, the hypnosis reveals zero. Um, and oddly enough, now this, this was a little bit interesting to me. Well, this is actually one of the more interesting angles of this case to me, period. Um, 
I don't know if this information was relayed to Jones when he had the case or if it never made its way out of this woman's mouth until um, Johnson takes the reins. But you you recall uh, the manager of the store at the time, the one they call in who tries to identify the bodies initially and is like, they didn't have any faces. Her name is... (laughs) This is absurd. I'm going to go bring that person some water. Are you okay? Uh, either some water or a pistol. Um, the, uh, just one bullet? Yeah, just, do you, do you want this to end? We can do it. Um, and so the, uh, they, the manager of the ICBY 91, now in December of 98, she is a Travis County Sheriff's Department deputy. Oh, and how about that? She... Inspired by tragedy. Yeah, right? Perhaps. And I guess that she heard Johnson's still working it and whatever. And so she says, I wanted him to know, or I I didn't know if he knew, that in the months prior to the murders, I and Jennifer Harbison, both at work and at home, had been receiving threatening phone calls. And... This is something that should have been brought to my attention yesterday. Right. Right. Um, and that her Rita Price's mm-hmm. apartment had been burglarized not long before yogurt shop. And she says that um, the intruder had left behind valuables, including a television set and jewelry but had taken the time to arrange some of her underwear in a neat pile on her bed with a kitchen knife on top. Oh, oh shit. That's threatening. And that- she had heard there had been clean cuts in the collars of Jennifer's and Eliza's shirts. She remembered the weird feeling she'd had when she saw the knife. And she said that she and Jennifer Harbison resembled each other physically, both tiny, long brown, or long light brown hair Could there have been a connection? And so Johnson's like, oh, all right, well, maybe we should talk a little bit more. Can you come down to the office? And she says, sure, no problem. So during that conversation. No one ever investigated the weird stalker? I guess, I don't know. Ah. And so during this meeting she has with Johnson at APD, she tells him about how the... There was, or she, she mentions the crawl space above the ceiling that kind of connected all of the hillside shopping centers stores. Mm-hmm. Um, and how on occasion she and the other girls had heard noises up in this crawl space. Could have been a fucking squirrel or a raccoon, raccoon, whatever. It could have been a human. Yeah. Um, and she said that there was one night when she was checking the bathrooms, she found shoe prints on the toilet seat in the men's room and noticed that a ceiling tile above it had been moved. And she used a bathroom or a, a broom broomstick. Handle, mm-hmm. Broomstick, yeah, to shift the tile back in place. So, I don't know. Um, Troubling. Troubling. And. I would feel unsafe in that environment. How, how was she just talking about this? I don't thing. know. That's what, I, I don't after. understand if she told Jones and it just... And Jones just didn't think it was... Like, well, okay, that's interesting, but 
you got any stuff? You know what I mean? Like, if we, there's nothing really to work with. You think it'd be or, written down somewhere, though. Right. It's I tell you, if someone broke into my house, whether they left me shit or not, if they're putting my underwear in a pile with a knife in the middle, I'm calling the police. Yeah, right? I guess, I don't know. It doesn't indicate that there she There has to be record of a report. So, yeah. And there's a whole lot more, but I guess as far as, like, cutting it and then resuming, that's sort of, that's where we is now. The the burglar burglar who, who <laughs> burglar the burglarizer who uh, messes with your unmentionables and lays a knife on top of you. Mm. All right, so riddle me this: where we're at right now? Yeah, <clears throat> we we get, I may, we get really close to arrest. I mean, oh, I was gonna say we're we're not at arrest. We did the hypnosis of of Maurice. Which revealed and nothing. You still don't remember doing those murders. Former managers like, oh yeah, I was being stalked real good, and there was probably somebody in the attic. Uh, <laughs> it's probably somebody in the crawl spaces. Okay. Yeah. What it, you know? I thus far, I got to tell you, I was wondering when you were talking about Johnson, and I was like, is he going to be a Mike Jones two point You know what I think he is? I think he's a Wish.com Mike Jones. I agree. That's what it sounds like to me. Yeah, apparently, so as I understand it, Johnson was maybe ultimately um, more favored by the family Mm. because he was the man who got the result, who got the arrest and so forth. You pick someone, you pointed at him, and you you relentlessly chased after that. So, yeah, I'm sure the family does appreciate that, but. But Jones, and as you'll recall, it didn't seem that Johnson had the same, um, I don't know, ethics or whatever, if you want to call it, as as Jones, because Jones and Huckabee said at the outset, we're not just going to get PC, charge somebody, and walk away. We're right. not going to file charges unless we can prove unless we can, this. Yeah, close And Jones and, or Johnson and company, rather. Instead, he constructed a four-hour plan on how, on how to, to get probable cause. How to get cause. a charge, right. yeah. <clears throat> we don't really have anything, but here's how we're going to make it. I have a feeling this is all going to turn out great. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's my my gut feeling right now on this. I don't like any of this. Uh-uh. But yeah, so uh-uh. next time I guess we can just right back to the end of the uh, underwear thing and just keep And go going. from there. Wow, that's exciting. Keep on rolling. Yeah. yeah. So I, I was, the best thing that happened during the episode was the appearance of Lil John. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. 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 That was exciting. What are the chances? Yeah, a guy right. named Little John. Little John. Mm. I think that was actually. I think his name was Littleton, but I don't know. I mean, whatever. Little John, Littleton. I don't care. I'll say you started calling him Littleton after you said yeah. his name was Little John. I think I said after I, Joe went off. I think I had typos or something. I don't know. Who cares? He, <laughs> this guy. We're calling him all by fake yeah. names anyway. This dude who retired. We got Forrest Gump and Mike a, Jones. Yeah. And he worked Herbert. for ATF for the last decade. And nobody care his name. Nah. All he did was say, bro, you can't do that. That's not going to work. Well. You ain't going to like it if we do today. Yeah. (laughs) Ain't going to be helpful. No. Man, I tell you, I mean, the story, the plot thickens. This is is, uh, in-depth, and uh, I've enjoyed it very much. Yeah, good work. I... uh, Oh, right. (laughs) Are you CPR certified? I feel like we got to go render aid, bro. All right. Well, Ray and I are going to go try to save a life. Yeah. Uh, Hmm. But... Until next time, y'all stay out of trouble. That's right.
Maybe two. Hold on your Maybe buds. more than one. Maybe more. Hold on your buds. Oh, you gonna do it? Oh! Damn! Oh, 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 that hurt worse than I remember. Oh, it's so bad. And you know what? If it like, cause I'm, you know, I'm recording this to, so we get loose in the goose. Uh, but you know, we got that, we got that compressor thing on there. So when the peep, the people hear that, it's not even gonna sound like nothing. Oh, Where no. you just so fractured our ear. Incredibly loud crack. No, no. <laughs> the inside of my ear is dying because that's all filtered out, that's thanks amazing. to Apple. Didn't yeah. filter it out of my ear. No, it didn't. Showing up. Rush your eardrums. Golly, right. Yeah, liquid pouring out of my ears mm-hmm. in the middle of the episode. That was hurtful. If I'd have figured out, if I was smart enough to realize what you were doing before you did it, you'd have taken the headphones off. I'd have taken the headphones off.